Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Well, I love this church. I've been here for about two hours, and I've been just overwhelmingly blessed and encouraged. Um, I love your pastor. Uh, first service, I got to stand and worship next to him. Um, this service, I couldn't because some lady named Christy got in between us. Um, but uh, he can, bro can sing. All right, he got pipes, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was, I was telling the first service that uh, I think uh, the Celine Dion show, that's one thing, but we should have a Vance Pittman, you know what I'm saying, like nightly. I mean, seriously, if you haven't heard him sing, it's nice, it's nice. I was swooning a little bit. But, um, but yeah, everything about this church is, that, is I've just been able to be here for a short time, and I got to meet with Pastor Vance and Pastor Travis in Chicago a year ago, took him to some Korean barbecue. It was nice, like heaven. And, um, and I was just... Uh, there's just something about this place that as a young church plant uh, in Chicago, a little over six years old now, and um, just there's not a lot of churches that I can look at and say, yeah, I want to be like that. Most of those churches are overseas, actually. Uh, but in America, there's maybe two or three churches I can really say, hey, five, ten years from now, we hope to be like this church. And this is one of those churches, the diversity, the expectation, the faith, the desire to, to be a church of prayer. Um, the, everything about this church is such a gift uh, to me. I'm here to learn uh, from you guys by just being with you guys. So I'm really thankful for that. Last night we had dinner at uh, King's Fish House, and he told me that I might be the first Asian-American pastor to ever preach a sermon at this church. And I felt a lot of pressure because there's 4.4 billion of us in the continent of Asia. <laughs> and there's probably like at least like half or like 300, 400 million more around the world. So there's like 5 billion of us, all right, y'all? So it's a lot of pressure right now. Um, but uh, just really, really humbled and thankful that I could be uh, able to bring the word to you this morning. If you have your scriptures, you would turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 14, the very last sentence of Luke chapter 14, and then we're going to look at the first uh, two verses of uh, Luke chapter 15. You guys know that there were no chapter divisions uh, in the original manuscript, and so uh, there's a flow coming from Luke 14 to Luke 15 that you can miss out on if you um, start from the, uh, Luke 15 without looking at this context. And so the very last sentence of Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is speaking, and he's, he says these words. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So let me give you a little bit of context. In Luke chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 25, the text says that there were large crowds of people that were traveling with Jesus. And uh, Jesus, I, tell, I told people in the first service that Jesus was, he was a, he was a terrible megachurch pastor, you know what I mean? Because in John 6, he has thousands of people following after he feeds uh, five to 10,000 people with a, a few loaves and a couple fish. And uh, when he's done with his sermon, there's no one left. And so here he is with another large crowd of people traveling with Jesus. And if I was a church planter and, and I had a ton of people, I would desperately try to keep them all at our church. You know what I'm saying? 
But here's Jesus. He don't care. He wants disciples. And so he turns to them and he says, listen, if you, if you want to follow me, you got to hate your father, mother, your, uh, your wife, your children, your brother, your sister, even your own life, and only then can you be my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross every single day. At the end of this section, he says, in fact, you got to give up everything you have to be my disciple. And there's a way to hear this as a legalistic thing and say, well, you're a bad disciple. But really, it's, it's the gospel. What he's saying is, if you encounter Jesus, if you encounter me, if you recognize who I am and the, the glory of what stands before you in this moment, if you see that I am a treasure that is worth far more than everything else in this world, no matter how ultimate those treasures might be to you, then you would gladly take up your cross. You would gladly make even family second, not even second, but like last compared to Jesus because he's so much greater. We, we had, a, we had a, a friend of mine, a classmate of mine from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He came to speak this fall. He's a missionary to the unreached people groups in Papua New Guinea. He planted a church among uh, people who never heard of Jesus. It took them nine years to plant this church. His wife got cancer twice and now is, has terminal cancer. You could pray for her. Uh, his kids had malaria multiple times. His family had ma malaria multiple times. I mean, all kinds of suffering that they went through. And he spoke at our church, and he said to us, he said, you know, in America, we always say, well, keep God first, but then we can keep all these things second, third, and fourth. He said, if I said that to my wife, I said, hey, listen, honey, I love you so much. You're first in my life. There's this other woman. She's second, but she's, you know, distant second. There's another woman. She's third, but you're first. Listen, no spouse is going to be, like, happy. Well, at least I'm first. And Jesus is not saying, I want to be first. He's saying, I want to be everything. That's what he's saying. And he's saying there's joy in that. And then he says, at the end of this little sermon, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in that moment, three times this idea of listening repeated. Jesus wants you to get something. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the very next sentence says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Do you get that? It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the pastors. It wasn't the theologians. It wasn't the seminary professors. It wasn't the missionaries. It was the, the taxers and the prostitutes. It's, it's the ones who are literally soliciting themselves on the strip. They were the ones who were clamoring to hear Jesus. And the religious ones were distant from his word. They were grumbling against Jesus. Now, I know that a lot of you say, well, that, that, that doesn't happen here, but let me tell you something, that happens in America. We planted our church in the near west side of Chicago, in an African-American neighborhood on Saturday night at 4 p.m. in February in the cold winter of 2012. And I remember um, praying over those 100 chairs. That's all that could fit. There was 100 chairs in that room, and we prayed that somebody would fill those spots. In Chicago, if you plant a church that grows over 100, it's like a miracle. And so we prayed. 168 people showed up and crammed that little room and that first Saturday night, 4 p.m. And as I often do when I guest speak, I, I was preaching that first sermon at the church plant. I was, I was anxious, but I was excited, and I always look for that face of that person who seems like they actually are paying attention to my sermon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Still trying to find you. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a guy maybe in like row, row four or five, and he was literally at the edge of his seat, just face almost glowing as he was, he wasn't just listening from his head, he was listening from his heart. 
And whenever I got discouraged, just like I'm going to look at you all service because you always encourage me, bro. He's, he's, he's with me, you know what I'm saying? So I would just, whenever I got discouraged, I would look back at that same face. And so after the service, I said, yo, who was that guy, man? That guy was such an encouragement. He was all in with my sermon. And no one knew who he was. And finally, I found a guy. He said, oh, I invited him on Facebook. He's actually not a Christian. He's a Buddhist. His wife's a Christian. He, they, they used to go to a church, but it was too cliquish. And so he wanted to learn about his wife's faith. So he said, hey, let's go to this new church because they can't have a click yet because it's brand new. It's one reason to plant a church, amen? Never thought about that. And in that whole room of 168 people, the most attentive person hearing the gospel was a Buddhist anesthesiologist. Four weeks later, I approached him and said, hey, bro, what do you think about Christianity? Every week, just mesmerized by the gospel. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, I hope one day I can live like Jesus lived. I said, well, before you live like Jesus lived, you got to... Trust in Jesus as your Savior so that he can empower you to live like he lived. So in front of that altar, after the service, I called up his friend who invited him on Facebook so he could have the opportunity to help lead this guy to Christ. And we prayed and uh, tears filling up his eyes. My mom and dad, my dad since passed away, mom and dad's front row. And I told my parents, they were so excited. They started giving me a hug and just, just preaching the gospel over him. He still remembers that moment to this day of my mom and dad just showering him with blessings. From, uh, he's a Thai-American guy. His dad's parents are from Thailand. And so um, 15 minutes after the, uh, the, the altar call, uh, when he received Christ as a Savior, 15 minutes later, he comes up to me. He says, Pastor, I heard you're starting a Bible study for students from my home country, Thailand. Can I help out? This dude's been saved 15 minutes. <laughs> and he wants to make disciples. Y'all feel? <laughs> Asian Christians, we don't play. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, don't mess with us. You know what I mean? And so I said, bro, tomorrow, tomorrow night, I'm leading a Bible study for these students from Thailand who are here to study English. I would love to have you come. That, that night before the Bible study, I called him up. I said, bro, can you share your testimony tonight? He was so unchurched. He said, what's a testimony? I said, just tell them what Jesus did to you last night. And that was my whole discipleship. We get to the uh, apartment, and uh, God miraculously provides, which he does all the time in our church plan, whenever we're reaching lost people, he miraculously provides a translator because they don't speak English very well. Uh, a woman who had come to Christ out of Buddhism from Thailand who knew um, English and Thai. And uh, I asked her to ask them this question. I said, who is Jesus? And in that room of students, only one of them had ever heard of Jesus. This is in our country. This is in Vegas. There are people that we walk by that have never heard of Jesus. We're studying here. And so uh, in that room, they, they literally, one of the girls said, uh, I've heard of that word before. What does that mean? I'm an evangelist. When you are about to share the gospel with someone who's never heard of the word of Jesus before, that's like the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like without the patriots. You know what I mean? Come on, church. And... Uh, and so I literally was, I was lit up. I'm like, this is the first time I'm ever going to hear the gospel. And so I shared the gospel with them. And then one of those sisters who had never heard of Jesus cuts me off through the translator and says, if this is the gospel, it's too good to be true. And I said to her, then you understand the gospel better than many of my church people do. I can tell you this in my six and a half years or so of launching our church that almost all the stories of the people who have wept, who have sat at the edge of their seat, 
who have been astonished by the gospel, almost all of them were either non-believers or new converts. There is a way for us who have been walking in the church for so long to almost be bored with the gospel. And in this few weeks, as this theme is awakened, how much do we have to ask the Father to reawaken us as church people to the beauty and the glory of the gospel? This is not something that can just be intellectually had. This is something that spiritually God has to gift us with, the vision of his glory. Amen? And so I'm going to ask you just for 20 seconds or so, just go ahead and close your eyes and just ask the Father, God, give me ears to hear afresh. Awaken me to the glory of the gospel. Father, we just pray that your spirit would just come now in fullness, God. And Lord, just take away the blurriness, take away the cataracts from our eyes so that we might see clearly and be awakened to the beauties of Jesus and the gospel again. We pray this, Lord, because only you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text continues, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Uh, that word muttered is the same word in the Greek Septuagint that's translated about the Israelites when they were grumbling in the wilderness against God. Uh, here the religious leaders are now doing the same thing against Jesus. But what they didn't realize was that as they were grumbling, they were grumbling about one of the most beautiful sentences of the gospel in all the scriptures. This is one of the most clearest, concise uh, statements of the gospel, I think, in the Bible. The Pharisees were mad at God for the gospel because this man welcomes sinners. And what I want to do with the short time we have left is to simply walk through this, this sentence and, and show you why so many of us in this room who've been Christians for so long are bored with the gospel, are not astonished by grace. And if you're not a believer yet, man, this is, the, this is the perfect week for you to be here because this is what separates Christianity from everything else. The first reason why I believe many of us are not amazed by grace is because we've forgotten who it is that welcomes us. This man, Jesus, welcomes you. And that could change everything if you understood who it is. I remember literally 11 years ago, in February of 2007, just a few miles from here on the Strip, the NBA All-Star Game, if you're from Vegas, came to Vegas, and it was crazy. I was helping plant a church in Compton, Long Beach at the time, and a few of my friends from Chicago flew out to L.A. We drove uh, to Vegas. We planned this trip not having any housing planned at first. We had no tickets. We had nothing except faith that God would provide. As we came to Vegas, because we had one goal, we wanted to meet as many NBA athletes and celebrities as possible, because we're just diehard sports fans. 
And so we had a blog at the time called Zanga that I wrote on, and I wrote in my blog, I said, hey, if you guys could pray for me that I would meet these athletes. And I began to list the different athletes I wanted to meet, like Kevin Garnett and Dwayne Wade and all these different people. And I said, of course, because I'm from Chicago, the ultimate person I need to meet, pray for me, is Michael Jordan. And I said, if you think I'm joking, you don't know me. I'm asking you to intercede. <laughs> and... Uh, and so that week, I remember it like it was yesterday, we met about over 100 NBA stars and celebrities. I mean, just went up to talk to some. Some of them were mean, like Kobe and Allen Iverson, and others, <laughs> others, were, others were gracious to us and kind to us. And we met Dr. J, Magic John. I mean, it was everybody was just walking around, chilling. We still hadn't met Jordan. Last night before we drove back on Sunday night, it was Saturday night, and... Uh, we're at the Bellagio Buffet eating that beautiful dinner, and, and uh, at the end of that buffet, just randomly, the waiter says, the last thing he says to us, he says, um, there's a rumor, did you guys hear? That Jordan's throwing his birthday party in the Bellagio, and my heart just leapt with joy. <laughs> and so I, so, I, so I told my guys, I said, yo, I'm going to stay in the lobby of the Bellagio because I'm assuming that's the only way to get in. I found out later there was another entrance, but I figured that was the only way to get in. And so I said, I'm going to wait there. They said, well, this is a rumor. How do you trust a waiter? I said, I don't care. All right, y'all can go somewhere else. But if you miss out on this, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And so we waited there until about 1 a.m. My friends were doubting, like Thomas. And... Uh, <laughs> But I had faith. I had faith. And about 1 a.m., the NFL superstar Deion Sanders, with his hat cocked down so that no one would recognize him, walked into to the uh, lobby and began to walk in this side hall. And I saw I followed him. <laughs> For like 10 or 15 minutes. I'm not joking. I followed him. And uh, finally led us to this back of the Bellagio. There's this curtained off area with music blaring. And he walks into the curtained off area. And as he walks in, I'm from Chicago, the NFL Hall of Famer, uh, Brian Erlacher, walks out of the party, goes to the bathroom, and all of a sudden I felt a need to also go. <laughs> and uh, there was like 30 empty urinals. He came with his friend. It was weird because there's like a rule of dudes that you never pee right next to them. And they were right next to each other. And so I peed on the other side of him. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm serious. If you walked in, you'd see three dudes right next to each other. And I didn't even have to go. I was faking it. And I just started looking at him like this in awe. And um, eventually he just looked at me like I was weird. I just looked at him like this. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a beautiful moment for me. And so... We, we, we walk back out to the, to the curtained off area and literally all these, like Dr. J shows up, Terrell Owens shows up. I mean, all these superstars start showing up. And so we're like, this is Jordan's party. Uh, I see a guy, there's security everywhere. I see a guy with a Christian t-shirt. So I say, yo, are you Christian? He said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I say, yo, I'm a pastor too. And we started to talk. He, he was roommates with Michael Jordan in the North Carolina basketball camps in high school. Um, like they write about him in, in Jordan's biography. His name is Randy Shepard. And he... It's since become a Christian and became an evangelist. And so I said, tell me every story about Jordan that you know. And he told me about how he shared the gospel with Michael Jordan on multiple occasions. It was really a powerful time. And then uh, his assistant came up to us about, uh, it's like 2.33 a.m. now. And, and his assistant comes up to us and says, he's here. And we all knew what that meant. And security tripled. 
And then when Michael Jordan came, Randy shouted out, yo, Mike. Mike said, chef, what's up? And the, the security cleared for all of us because they thought I was with him. <laughs> like, they thought I was his cousin, even though he was white, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so Jordan's right here. Randy Shepard's right here. I'm right here. I'm like right next to Michael Jordan, and I'm just in awe. They talked for five minutes. He actually gave him his phone number. I was tempted to, like, take down his phone number. And then as he started to walk off, I put my hand out, and Michael Jordan's beautiful, large hands enveloped my hands with love. <laughs> Don't judge me. You weren't there. And so, and, uh, and I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm a, I'm a pastor too. God bless you, bro. And he said, um, thank you. And that was it. And I was changed. I literally, I literally, I started to, like, jump. I was, I was so excited. I, I started walk. I started to evangelize. I started to tell people. I saw these two random African-American guys. I said, yo, I just met Michael Jordan. They said, no, you didn't. I said, yo, I just met MJ. They said, no, you didn't. I said, yo, shake my hand. They said, what? I said, shake my hand. So he shook my hand. I said, you just shook the hand that shook the hand of Michael Jordan. <laughs> and I literally walked out with swagger until his other friend shouted at me, yo, shake my hand too. <laughs> so I had to go back and shake his hand. And I tell that story because there was only one reason why I was so excited that I couldn't hold it in. It's because of who it was that shook my hand. Because of who it was that said thank you. If some random other person shook my hand, I'd be like, yo, get off me. I don't know you like that. <laughs> but because it was Michael Jordan, amen? amen? I was changed. Do you know who welcomes you? God of the universe, Jesus, who literally was there in the beginning, who before there was any kind of matter, he spoke a sentence and hundreds of billions of galaxies were formed with a word. Amen. Amen. That, 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 that Jesus could have created thousands of Michael Jordans, amen? In fact, he tried. His name was Kobe. It didn't work. <laughs> it was an abject failure. It was not good. This Jesus, according to Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet, who was probably the holiest man walking on that earth, had a vision of Jesus. And in this vision, the angels, if an angel showed up right now, we would probably all fall in terror at the angel's holiness. That angel and those angels, as they see the glory of Jesus... They literally cover their faces, they cover their feet, and they literally shout out and repeat to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that Jesus, who is so holy, that Uzzah, when the ark fell and he tried to literally steady the ark so that it would not fall, he literally died because of the holiness of Jesus. And that holy God, that if we come in his presence without a substitutionary Savior, we would literally die in his presence. He welcomes sinners. Do you know who it is? Do you know who it is, church, that welcomes you? It would change everything. This man welcomes sinners. Another reason why we're not awakened to the beauty of the gospel is because we don't know the intimate welcome of Jesus. 
You see, there, in the Greek, there's a basic word for welcome called dekamai. It's kind of a general welcome word. It's like when the ushers welcomed you guys into the sanctuary. Um, it wasn't intimate, but it was kind, and they smiled at you, and it felt nice to be uh, recognized. But uh, the Pharisees could have said, you dekamai sinners, because religious people didn't associate with the unclean. But they don't say you decamai because they knew Jesus. He didn't just decamai sinners. No, he cross decamai sinners. That word has a, uh, a sense of intimacy. It's kind of like when you haven't seen your best friend in a year or two, and then they come visit you in Vegas, and you hug them at the airport, and then all night you just share stories, and you don't just welcome them into your presence, but you welcome them into your heart. You tell them your deepest secrets, you tell them your deepest joys, and you cry together, you laugh together. That's the kind of welcome that the Pharisees were angry at Jesus for. You enjoy these sinners. You delight in them. You love them. My question to you is, when's the last time that you have experienced the prostecomai of Jesus? You see, most of us in this room, we think at best, functionally, that God maybe tolerates us because we're just failures. We're just not good enough. I mean, we want to be good Christians, but we have addictions. We have struggles. We got family pain. Our marriages aren't always perfect. Our kids are sometimes prodigal. Um, and, and, and so many struggles that we have, and we just... We just kind of think that, I mean, God loves us in theory, but not actually. I remember uh, my mentor, he's in his late 70s now. He's been mentoring me for about eight, nine years now. And we meet every month on Skype. And there was one particular session where he asked me this question. Um, when you repent, what's the look on Jesus' face? It's a question you should ask yourself. I studied theology at Wheaton College for four years, studied seminary three years, and I didn't know the answer. Never thought about it. Because when I repent, I don't look to Jesus. I just look at my sin and I wallow in it until I feel bad enough that I feel like maybe he's okay now. And I said, I don't know. He said, Dave, he smiles at you. And in my head, I knew theologically he was right. But in my heart, I had a visceral reaction that said, no way. And so the next week or two, I processed, well, why was I not able to receive that smile of Jesus and then it hit me that never once had I experienced that in real life. I mean, every context that we're in, whether that be school or whether that be in work, or whether it be in our marriage, whether it be with our parents. Like when I was growing up as a kid, my dad was a perfectionist and he was, he was very strict and, and he expected all A's at all times. And, and, and so literally as a young kid, I learned that any time I failed, any time I made a mistake, that I looked at the fa my father's face and I only saw disappointment and anger. And think about this. When's the last time you, you hurt someone deeply and then you looked to them before you'd even said sorry and you saw a smile on their face? No, most of us, we know that if we're going to try to repair a relationship where we've broken trust, that we have to grovel enough so they know that we know how much they hurt because of us. And even then, they may not forgive us. Right. And even if they do forgive you, they might be suspicious and skeptical and guard their heart against you for the second time you hurt them. That's the world that we live in. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that when you mess up, and that's all the time, there's never been a day in this room 
that somebody here has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength ever. And yet, when you recognize your failure before the Father, when you recognize how much you've broken his heart and fallen short of his glory, and you look to him, the Bible says in this same chapter, the Father lifts up his robe, runs to you. I mean, can't wait. Runs to the prodigal, the worst Jewish believer ever. Throws his arms around him. Kisses you. Puts a new robe of righteousness over you. Throws a celebration. Kills a fattened calf. Every time a sinner repents, comes home. There's nothing like this. When's the last time you felt the intimate welcome of the Father? When's the last time you poured out your brokenness before God so that you were intimate with him? That's the point of the gospel. You don't have to rely only on the sermon or on the Bible study leader. God wants to be intimate with you now. And so first, we see who it is that welcomes us, this man. Secondly, we see the intimate welcome of Jesus. And lastly, this, he welcomes sinners, only sinners. Man, if you grew up in a church or a religion that said, I got to be good and acceptable. I have to be righteous. I have to be moral if I'm going to be accepted by, gee, I got to fix myself. There's a lot of my people, they, they get saved and they say, let's get baptized. Well, I got to fix myself and then I'll get baptized. Well, you'll never get baptized then because the only kind of person that gets baptized, the only kind of person that gets saved are sinners, are rebels, are enemies of a holy God. That's the only kind that he welcomes. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't welcome any good people because there are none. There are just some people who think they are good. I remember years ago, uh, I went to a boarding school in Illinois called the Illinois Math and Science Academy, and a lot of my friends and classmates would end up going to Ivy League schools and um, doing great things for the world, like the guy who founded YouTube and Sparks Notes and, and uh, OKCupid, all these people just came from our little school. And, and so it was our 10-year high school reunion. I was voted class clown in my high school, but I got radically converted, uh, or at least radically renewed in my faith in college. And uh, I remember uh, getting the call to ministry, and we didn't have social media back then, and so no one knew that I was a pastor, or very few people did. So I told my church, I said, hey, there's a 10-year high school reunion. Um, they think I'm the class clown. They think I'm a joker, but I'm going in as a missionary. I need your prayers. And so I got prayed up and prayed over by people and went to the Sears, top of the Sears Tower. Everyone's dressed up in our late 20s at the time. And um, I started sharing Jesus with people, and I got rejected by everybody. And I started getting ridiculed, and they said, you don't really believe in that anti-intellectual crap, do you? And so I started getting discouraged. People I used to make fun of were not making fun of me and ridiculing me. So I saw a buddy of mine who I knew was a Christian in high school, and I wanted to be encouraged, so I went to him and said, hey, how's your faith, bro? He said, I don't believe anymore. I said, what happened? He said, well, I took a comparative religions class, and I learned that all religions are the same. I said, okay, well, then tell me what's the same. You studied all religions in one semester, in one class, and you learned about them all. It's amazing. You're brilliant. (laughs) So I said, what's the same about them all? He said, ah, never thought about that. Everyone in America says all religions are the same. They never studied them all. So finally he stutters out. He says, ah, man's devotion to God. So hey, that's pretty good for not having an answer. I said, you're right. That is every major religion except for one, Christianity. Because the heart of Christianity is not our devotion to God. 
the heart of Christianity is God's devotion to us. That while we were enemies, while we were enemies, he loved you enough to send his only son Jesus to die for you. And this gospel is not just for those who are coming to Christ. This gospel is for those of us in the church. It's for everything from conversion all the way to glorification in heaven. And that's part of the beauty of churches, is that in the mess of church and relationships, we can apply the gospel to our communities and set people free. We started our church plant, and we named it Church of the Beloved. With that, we had a vision that we want to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know that they're beloved of God because of Christ alone. A few years into our church plant, our church was growing really fast. We planted a second location downtown. It was our first retreat for our downtown location. And um, I prayed, God, what, what, what do you want for the theme for this retreat? And, and I don't know if you ever asked for God's advice, and then when he gives it to you, you kind of wish you hadn't. So he said, I want you to get all the elders and deacons that you're discipling to become the first batch of elders and deacons. I want you guys all to come before your church membership and share with them your deepest shame from your past. And then at the end of that weekend, have them vote if they still want you to be their elders and deacons. And so I called up the uh, elders and deacons in training, brought them to my condo and said, hey, here's a theme. And you could just see the look of terror on their faces like they saw a ghost. So I said, well, let's just try now in front of 10 of us because we're going to have to do it in front of the whole church membership. And literally grown men in that room who were training up to be elders, people who had walked with God for decades, were weeping in utter fear of what they were about to confess and how we would react to that. These are gospel people. Do you understand? In theory, but in their hearts, utterly in bondage, to shame and fear of what other people condemn them with. Romans 8, there's no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet so many of us have inner critics that condemn ourselves and forget the voice of the gospel. And sometimes the church is the worst place, the place where we feel the most unsafe. And so we get to that retreat center on Friday night, and I announced the theme of the retreat, and you could just see the quietness over the audience. One brother told me later that when you announced the theme, I was literally going to leave the retreat. I want to leave the retreat right there. But then I thought about it. If I leave right now, everyone's going to be wondering what the heck sin I didn't want to commit or confess. <laughs> and so uh, that Saturday morning was our elders' turn. It was me and three other elders, and... and um, I had a panic attack. I had two panic attacks that week, one early in the week and then one that morning, Saturday morning. I woke up at 5 a.m. with a panic attack. I was like, I'm going to, uh, there's no way they're going to want me to be their pastor. None after I share this. And the Lord in his mercy spoke to me that morning and said, Dave, in the midst of your panic attack, he didn't say that, but it was in the midst of my panic attack, he said, uh, I want you to share by yourself, not with these other guys. I was like, thank you. It's very kind. <laughs> so now I'm already having a panic attack and I got to do it by myself. So I stood before my church. Luckily, it wasn't as big as this, and, and I, I couldn't even look at them because I had so much shame. And I shared with them my most shameful moment in all my years of ministry, and I was convinced that I was done. I felt so naked and so ashamed. And then a miracle happened. One by one, my church people stood up and began to come up to the front. They laid their hands on me. 
They begin to pray the gospel over me. And this pastor who had been in ministry for almost two decades began to weep uncontrollably as the burden of shame fell off of my shoulders. And I received the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, church. Are you awakened to its beauty? This man welcomes sinners. I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. So many of us as Christians, we so desperately try to put up this front that we're godlier than we actually are. We miss out on the beauty of love and mercy in our lives. Let me just close with this last thought. This beautiful sentence of the gospel didn't just happen because God's this lovey-dovey God. It happened because it cost his son everything. You see, he welcomes us because he sent his son, Jesus, to the cross. He forsook his son. You see, he's able to delight over you because he poured wrath upon Jesus. You see, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that so that he would never forsake you. And so, church, in this season of awakening, and not just for this week, but for the rest of your days, by the mercy of God, ask the Father, awaken my soul into all of eternity, to the beauty, to the glory, to the treasure. This man, Jesus, welcomes you. Let's pray. And I'm going to have us just bow before the Father and just take some time to just, whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to you through his word right now, just begin to cry out or Repent or even just sit and just receive the smile of God, unearned, unmerited by anything you've done, but merited because of the work of Christ, his life, his perfect obedient life, his death, and his resurrection. So spend a few moments just coming before God.